You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. If they think that by carrying out rocket attacks, our people will put their heads down, then they should rethink. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani responds defiantly to another Taliban attack. How much more of that is he going to have to do? My guests Joy Lodico and Samira Shackle will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Microsoft's apparent thwarting of another Russian cyber attack on American democracy, Berlin's latest ideas for clearing non-passengers from its train stations, and the joys of a long walk in the city. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Joy Ladiko, columnist at the Evening Standard, and Samira Shackle, freelance journalist contributing to the New Statesman Guardian, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle, and indeed Monocle. Uh, welcome both. We will start in Afghanistan, where yesterday President Ashraf Ghani appealed to the Taliban for a ceasefire in observance of Eid al-Adha. Today, he appears to have received his answer, a series of mortar explosions in the vicinity of the presidential palace, as President Ghani attempted to deliver a televised speech commemorating the holiday. The building from which the missiles were directed was engaged by an Afghan military helicopter. Officials later reported all the assailants dead. Four people were injured in the attack, the latest in a long series of such recently attributed to and or claimed by the Taliban and or Islamic State. Um, Samira, first of all, this seems a bit weird from the Taliban, or at least inconsistent, because they did observe a ceasefire for Eid al-Fitr back in June. What, if anything, has changed? I mean, it's quite hard to say, really, I guess, uh, to kind of find a logic in it. But I think it's definitely a, a sign of their uh, kind of increasing boldness and and you know this is striking at uh, not one of they've, they've had kind of been fighting in rural areas but this is striking at the most heavily fortified heavily guarded part of the whole country certainly the most heavily fortified bit of Kabul which is the safest bit of Afghanistan so I think it shows a kind of uh, I think partly a growing confidence and partly um, I mean it's a it's a kind of fingers up to the government isn't it you know there's these big efforts to get the Taliban to sit down in peace talks uh, and I think to have a, a strike although no one was hurt at this very heavily fortified area um, when there are attempts to broker a ceasefire, uh, when there is all this pressure to talk, I think it's a real kind of sign that they're not willing to sit down for dialogue, which, you know, indicates I think increasing support uh, that they've been getting from other regional powers over the last uh, over the last sort of, I mean, few years, but but stepping up over the last few years. Uh, Joy, it may be a distinction without much meaning, but as, as Samira points out, this is a strike, although a mercifully relatively uh, undamaging one, but it is nonetheless a strike at the most fortified few square miles of the country. Is this the Taliban actually doing as they please, or are they making a slightly theatrical effort to create the impression that they can do as they please? 
Well, that's a very interesting question. I'm not on the ground and I couldn't possibly tell you the kind of details of it. But in terms of kind of world media eyes, um, you know, this is the top story uh, on Monocle today. It's um, it's received a vast amount of coverage. Every time we sort of think the Afghanistan problem is dying down or going away, we seem to be drawn back into it. Uh, And this is a very clever media tactic to um, make us see that, in fact, the Taliban is far stronger, I think, than we would like to think they are. Um, And they did have their Ghazni attack, which made some penetration into international news but you're you know you're aiming your rockets at a president who is essentially a kind of u.s government backed leader uh there's going to be another round of elections next year um at what point does this become showpiece terrorism rather than um just sort of civil war within the country Uh, you make the reasonable point that the taliban's recent attack on ghazni which was a which was no small change that was a, a a serious attempt to take a seriously sized city and it did result in in dozens and dozens of casualties and yet as the taliban appear to have noticed uh does not uh, attract you anything like the international attention as launching a few mortars in the general direction of the president um Samir, it has now been getting on for, well, we're coming up for 17 years mm. uh, since the West first sent troops into Afghanistan. Are the Taliban, do you think, increasingly counting on the idea that really at this point, no one, well, everyone has basically lost interest? I don't think everyone has lost interest, actually. And that's the the thing. I mean, I think there was certainly a period where uh, where there was a kind of loss of interest, perhaps. Um, but I think especially with uh, ISIS um, establishing itself in Afghanistan, I mean, in quite a small way, they're mainly in Nangarhar province, close to Pakistan. Uh, but I think that really spooked a lot of regional powers. So you had obviously, historically, uh, long before the American invasion, you had the Pakistani government, uh, or not government, um, intelligence services, rather, uh, supporting the Afghan Taliban. And ever since, they've been offering, you know, substantial logistical and financial support. Uh, it's kind of pretty heavily suspected that the Afghan Taliban's leadership are based in northern Pakistan, for instance. So that's well established. But you've also, since the emergence of ISIS, had um, uh, sort of increased contact with the Taliban from from regional powers who'd, re- who'd previously really opposed them. So Russia and Iran and so on, kind of having uh, some level of interaction with the Taliban, I think, uh, seeing them as, as the lesser of two evils against ISIS. And, and also, I think, um, seeking to to have some influence in Afghanistan while the perception was uh, since 2014 that America was no longer the kind of only player in town, as it were. Uh, Historically, also, we've seen that more foreign interference is not good for Afghanistan. Uh, So it's not a particularly encouraging trend but I think there's a lot uh, a lot more going on there than just uh, kind of NATO troops and Britain sending more non-combat forces and all of that and American airstrikes. Well, is there an argument then uh, Joy given what Samira has just laid out there for America and the NATO powers basically deciding well if Russia and Iran want it that badly they're welcome to it and see how far they get? Well, I mean, it has been a rather sort of endless and depressing uh, engagement that we've had there. I mean, when we started, it was 2001, and we went in with a very specific mission, which was take out the Al-Qaeda camps, which we did very effectively in about four months, I think it was. And then somehow or other, the conflict then widened out. We'd in fact at that point had said there was no problem with the Taliban. Uh, At some point we then decided to change that the regime there needed to be changed, and thus we get drawn in. Um, We would have to 
retreat, um, very much like we did in the 19th century down the Khyber Pass, and just say it's not our problem anymore. But, you know, over the course of this 17 years, we are not winning this battle. There was a point when we had 10,000 troops there. We Brits had 10,000 troops there. The US had 100,000. The numbers now are much, much smaller. And the idea that we're going to defeat the Taliban, which still has... 15% of the country and sort of about another third, which is uh, fought over with such minimal troops. Um, I, we're not going to do it. So why stay in a way? Why stay? I mean, you're either going to win or you're going to lose. Trump was interesting. Uh, when he came in, he said his instincts were uh, to pull out. Uh, and Trump's instincts are sort of irritatingly, occasionally quite good. Uh, and then I think he was persuaded by the military men to plough back in again. And a year on, here we are. Well, let's look now at the United States and towards those midterm elections looming in November. For obvious enough reasons, these will be the subject of far greater international interest than these things usually are. And unsurprisingly, it already seems clear that some of that interest is from Russia, which is either pursuing its wider policy of nihilistic mischief or seeking to protect its investment. Microsoft claims that several cyber attacks upon American conservative groups have been thwarted, specifically upon two think tanks, which once broadly supported President Donald Trump, but now appear to have changed their minds. Um, Samira, Russia denies everything. Uh, they say they are unaware, or perhaps present, but not involved. Um, is, is, is that denial good enough for us? We're perfectly happy to take their word for it and move on. Yeah, I'm sure they wouldn't deny it if they'd done it. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think they've, there's been quite a comprehensive denial consistently. There was actually a poll out today, I think, that... Um, showed that, that something like 70% of uh, Russians believed Putin's denials that, uh, of any kind of interference in, in US politics. I'm surprised it's yeah. as low as 70. I thought that too, actually. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't think we should be taking that denial at face value. There seems to be quite comprehensive evidence. I mean, what we don't have evidence of is how effective this meddling is, but we certainly have evidence that it's going on. Uh, Microsoft, uh, Joy, have said that the, the group which hacked uh, these, two, these two think tanks is uh, the group known as Fancy Bear. They're the same group which hacked the DNC and the Clinton campaign. They are allegedly tied to the GRU, Russian military intelligence. Um, it's, it's the eternal question with Russia, I guess, is uh, do they do this stuff um, with a strategic goal in sight or is just screwing with everybody kind of the, for the sake of it actually the strategic goal? Um, I would sort of say it's almost the second, actually. I mean, you create such divisiveness by doing this. You uh, rile up half the population. Uh, you pump out um, disinformation, They're not hacking, but the disinformation to the point where nobody has any idea of where the facts lie anymore. And then you deny it's you. And you also poss possibly by accident managed to install Donald Trump as the president, uh, who... Uh, enrages half his nation to a kind of point of apoplexy but also then will not face off with Russia over it and you've got to remember go back to the Helsinki summit where Trump's Trump you know like the Russian people believes Putin's denials and at this point uh, and then obviously has to change the wording at this point there's a sort of madness begins to enter into the entire thing and things stop functioning. It is weird to discover that 30% of Russians are actually less credulous than the President of the United States, where, where Russia's <laughs> denials are concerned. Um, this is, and has always been, though, Samira, actually quite serious. How, how angry, in terms of retaliation, is the United States, or indeed any country, entitled to get with, with Russia when it does this? Because this is, this, if, if a country is a democracy, this is Russia screwing with the very fundamentals of what makes a democracy what it is. Yeah, I think so. I think that the, the 
where it gets kind of complicated, to my mind at least, is that the fact that, you know, um, big international powers have meddled in other countries' elections or internal politics for a long time. So you've got, uh, you know, and that can be can sort of appear quite benign I think it might be a case of, of funding kind of pro-democracy rebel groups but you know to someone else uh, with a different worldview that might not appear so benign so it's that, that there's that kind of question I think that this kind of uh, this kind of meddling and interference uh, has gone on in different parts of the world for a long time and it's maybe slightly different now because of the because of the internet um, there's also uh, you know on the other hand, the fact that, as, as you guys have just been saying, it's, it seems very much uh, aimed at sowing discord and that the, the goal seems to be kind of polarisation and chaos rather than serving a particular kind of political aim or ideology. Um, and I certainly think we do need to be aware of it while not, I think, over-hyping at how much influence it can have because I think you maybe give these forces more uh, more power than they might otherwise have by kind of exaggerating the roles you know to th- there's kind of been which, which uh, may even be part of their strategy yeah it might well be as you, as you say it kind of sows discord through the very discussion of it but you know there's been some kind of internet jokes over the last few months about kind of pointing at anyone you disagree with and saying Russian bot <laughs> and I think you know that's obviously not helpful but we do need to think about the kind of shifting nature of how this stuff works and, and happens and about how uh, you know how we process and receive information and how we tackle that is there a concern, Joy, that things may get weirder still between now and November? If Russia thinks, or if Russia is reading the same polls as the rest of us are, and if, if Russia doesn't know something about the results that we don't, uh, Trump is likely, or the Republicans are quite likely to get beaten up quite badly in November, which means, in theory, that Trump will become less influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there a possibility that if Russia's thinking that they might think, well, we've got however many months, three months left to make the most of this? Well, yes, but they're they're now coming up against um, one particularly good force, which is it's Microsoft. You know, noting this story, it's Microsoft who spots the hack. Um, Google and Facebook have now lent their top uh, security experts to various government websites. So. The forces of Silicon Valley and Seattle are actually lining up to, as a form of defence against uh, the essential cyber war that's going on from Russia. Now, I haven't heard them be so vocal or you know attach their names to this previously. And I think the US does dominate Russia in terms of technical sophistication on this. Um, the other thing that's being is happening is that actually sort of election agents, anybody involved in local election stuff, is getting training on how to not get themselves spearfish. So, you know, essentially, if you think of your local granny at the polling station, is being given pointers as to how to avoid it. I'm not sure how watertight that's going to be. Um, so having been made aware of it in 2016, and I think it, it's fairly established that it has happened and it's most likely to be Russia. There are potentially other uh, countries involved. Uh, they do finally seem to have kind of lined up um, some counterforces. Well, on that semi-hopeful note, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Joy Ladiko and Samira Shackle. Coming up next, why you should all take a hike. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials, from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life, from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful, large format books is available later this month. 
Find out more at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Samira Shackle and Joy Ladico. And if you're listening to this in the Northern Hemisphere, you are approaching the time of year at which the days are shortening, and with them the time available to enjoy being outside before it is rendered intolerable by the cold, dark and Christmas decorations. Usually, when we think of going for a walk, we think of doing so in the country, or at least in the most bucolic facsimile thereof we can locate. But is there, especially on such a frankly slow news day as this, something to be said for going for a walk in a city um joy i'm a big fan of of this as a as a thing walking aimlessly in cities i, I do a great deal of it uh, not always intentionally um but it's 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 a thing that more people should do so yes I and mean, the reason we're talking about this is there's a, a been an article today by uh, john ellidge who runs a website called city metric about these long walks he goes for um, through he, town. He is he actually, an extreme case. He's an extreme case. He's sort of essentially live tweeting the walk. But we have got to this idea that the only way you can walk is going across the kind of hills or the kind of, um, you know, in, in the south of England. And I keep finding friends of mine texting me on the weekend saying, I'm, I'm just going for a hike. And what, what do you mean you're going for a hike? And there's, you know, it's now become kind of weekend activity. And he's pulled it back to this but in fact, what is in a very old-fashioned thing, which is to be a flaneur in a city, to walk, to observe, to see your fellow citizens. Um, and I don't quite know why it's coming back into fashion quite just now, um, but I think it's a very good and healthy thing to do as a way of slowing down. Uh, it's also the fact that, as I, I believe John Ellidge uh, points out in the piece, uh, and I will put this to you, Samira, that the countryside's actually quite dull. I mean, there's, I mean, once you've seen one field and one cow, you, 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 <laughs> you've kind of got the idea, haven't you? I mean, there's variation, like there's hills. And, you know, <laughs> Again, there's, once you've seen and I guess, a hill. And I guess if you're talking about slowing down, uh, being in a kind of natural landscape and, and appreciating the beauty of nature is the is a kind of accentuated version of that slowing down. But I think it, it, I don't think you need to bash country walking to appreciate city walking. I also love walking around cities. Actually, it's a. If I have time, I quite. Uh, I always prefer to walk places to get from A to B, for instance, which is just quite a nice way of engaging with your environment and seeing how things link up and just kind of clearing your head. Um, you know, I think there's a kind of um, literary tradition of uh, kind of writers associating uh, walking, in some cases urban walking, with uh, with creativity. Uh, I know uh, when uh, we were sort of initially talking about this as a topic, I immediately thought of Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, which kind of opens with this very famous scene where she's walking through the city and and that kind of sense of life and vibrancy. I think, yeah, that's that's great. I, I have visited quite a lot of cities in the last few weeks on, on behalf of Monocle uh, and did walk in most of them, often for some distance. Um, it, it's amazing, Joy, how dif- what, just what a difference to being a good walking city or a bad walking city a basic geography can make. I mean, this, sounds, this isn't a revelation, but I- Istanbul's a tricky one for the walker because while spectacular, a lot of hills. A lot of hills, uh, <laughs> and up and down, up and down. Um, I think sort of, um, I mean, I've just done a whole tour through sort of central European cities, which are all essentially designed for walking or horse and cart. So if you can get something where an animal has had to do quite a lot of the work, you'll find it's quite flat. London actually is difficult to walk in, I find, because you are constantly uh, crossing these sort of major avenues. And there are, although there are back streets, there are these sort of kind of gridlocked areas all the time. In fact, it can be rather unpleasant in the streets. Uh, and there's not, there's not other than... Uh, Kensington Gardens and Hyde Park 
or Regent's Park. There aren't actually huge parks to, as thoroughfares. Do either of you have a particular favourite London walk? I used to, I, I, when I used to live slightly closer to London, well, closer to the West End when I lived in Shoreditch, I would usually walk into town, which took about mm. 45 minutes, which, given the usual traffic, actually wasn't that much slower than the bus. <laughs> Yeah, that's really nice. Uh, I actually lived in Bloomsbury for a bit, which was a complete delight because there's all the squares around there and you can just kind of walk pretty much anywhere. It's really, really nice. Um, well, I, work, yeah. I, I live in Soho, but I basically just walk mm. around in a circle mm. or crisscrossing back and forth all the time. But I quite like actually the sort of back alleys of Mayfair and uh, um, you know, Shepherd's Market, which uh, seemed like they belong to another era. Is there literally um, anybody ever in those? Though? Oh, yeah, no, it's now um, sort of it's become slightly kind of Arabized, Arab, Arabicized. And <laughs> Mayfair has been for many years, though. Yes, but they're, they're all sitting there. And then there's these shoe shops, these shoes that, you know, you wouldn't see any sort of modern person wearing, but there they are all lined up. See, th- th- those are the phenomena that always interest me that you only really notice when you're walking. I don't know if they're still there because it's a long time since I've walked down Hackney Road, but there just used to be block after block after block of handbag wholesalers. They're still there. Yeah. Are they, yeah. So what they're is going, what is there going on today. there? Because that Money is, laundering? Don't know. Because that isn't... Well, <laughs> That is now some extremely expensive real estate, and yet there they all still are, and no one ever seems to enter or leave them. Yeah, it's bizarre. But I think I think we're sort of having a radical fight back against the efficiency of uh, tube trains and um, electric bicycles, and this is um, lycra-clad bicycles. And there's something about walking which is um, is a way of just refusing to engage in all these systems that we're meant to engage in, and you become mm. kind of a bit of an anarchist on the streets. Are, are you a purist about it in that do you insist it should be done without recourse to earphones or phones? Uh, no, I'm a, I'm an earphone wearer when I'm walking. Mm, um, me too. Uh, but no umbrellas uh, anywhere near it. So, yeah. you know, you, you have to be prepared to kind of get absolutely yeah, drenched but, at times. But, but that... that well, we should move on before that spurs me into filling the rest of the programme, as I have many times before with another impassioned plea for the abolition of umbrellas, which are evil, I think, is a, is a word I do not use lightly, but I, I would apply it to the umbrella and the people who use them in crowded cities. I'm sure there's a, uh, it's, you'll be a very successful policy uh, if you want to stand for London Mayor, if you wanted to ban umbrellas in I, London. I, if anybody stood on that platform, regardless of how horrible the rest of their policies were, I would still vote for I them. I think umbrellas are fine. That that is a controversy we do not unfortunately have time for right now because finally tonight we are looking at Berlin and the eternal conundrum faced by all train stations, i.e. that they contain two types of people, those trying to leave and those who won't. Deutsche Bahn has announced plans to deter the drug users who gather in the Hermannstrasse station in Berlin by broadcasting what is referred to as atonal music through the loudspeakers. The fact that Deutsche Bahn think this is going to work displays a shocking ignorance of the musical heritage of Berlin, which is from Meinstrasen Neubarten to early Bad Seeds and David Bowie's Berlin trilogy, largely comprised of atonal music made by people on drugs. Um, first of all, Joy, uh, do we like this as an idea? Because variations of it uh, are manifest in London tube stations. There's some that play classical music to to deter the local rapscallions. Well, are the, the rapscallions are being deterred and the kind of nice, polite people are being drawn into them. Uh, does it change the mood of the place uh, based on the music you listen to? Well, you've got loads of shops that will kind of play heavy rock music which will deter a certain number of shoppers and bring other people in um 
atonal music. Um, I think it would deter every single commuter. And is it Hermannstrasse that it's happening it at? I mean, it's a, it's a clear way to make sure that the passenger numbers go down on that particular <laughs> station on those particular lines. Uh, but we, we have asked you both, and uh, indeed I have been asked myself, for clips from music of the sort that we would play uh, to deter stragglers at a railway station. Samira, explain your choice first. Well, it's just so annoying. <laughs> so annoying if it was just playing on repeat. Uh, I think actually anything, uh, you know, we were asked to pick one song. I think anything that was playing again and again and again would probably put you off staying in one place. I had a friend who once had a job at um, uh, Buckingham Palace over the summer when we were at sixth form and uh, they just played a 30 second loop of the national anthem all day in the room oh she was in. <laughs> uh, but this song uh, was a very annoying one hit wonder from my teenage years. Let's hear it. And thank you, miss. Come and dance with me. Well, I, I already don't want to be in this studio, so it, 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 it's working at that level. That, that was a bad moment i think that was, that was there was rap country after yeah. that <laughs> kind of a big and rich sort of got away with it for one and a half albums but beyond <laughs> that oof uh, that was crazy town no it was crazy town uh, with with butterfly yeah absolutely terrible record i think i think that would work just one of those sort of insistent yelping one hit pop songs where the whole thing is constructed clearly so you only need to hear it for 10 seconds and yeah. you'll never forget it for as <laughs> yeah, long as you so live annoying. as indeed you haven't still <laughs> yeah. scarred by it all these years later all these years later um joy what what have you chosen your your great station clearing uh it's rainy day women by bob dylan which uh, and although i I think i'm seeing what you've done here although i'm a huge (laughs) dylan fan every time this comes pops up on the playlist i find myself sort of clasping my hands over my ears going no why 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 of all the torture and it's just painful the whole thing and you the instruments are painful enough and then the man starts singing, and I quite like his voice, but even in this one, the problem, as you will discover, is if what you're trying to do is deter drug addicts, the entire thing is, in fact, um, a pay into um, getting stoned. You, you may just be encouraging them. Let's hear some of one of Bob Dylan's less, less fine hours. That was Rainy Day Women 12 and 35 by Bob Dylan. It is incredibly, it's the opening track of Blonde on Blonde, which is routinely, and that song aside, actually routinely acclaimed one of his and indeed one of anybody's greatest albums. I I would argue that it is a precursor of what became known as Jazz Police Syndrome, uh, named after the one song on Leonard Cohen's I'm Your Man, which is inexplicably terrible. It's that thing. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. It's that thing where you have an album which is a total masterpiece, but just has one song on it, which is absolutely (laughs) shocking. And yeah, jazz, jazz police is the it's the exemplar par excellence of that. That's not far do you off. Think, do you think it's only to show off how good the other tracks are that you give them a complete dud? 
I don't know. I think he was he was definitely running the risk, though, that the rest of this masterpiece would never be heard. As this, like, people got thirty seconds into that, and just did the scratching of the needle off the vinyl, as was the style at the time. Well, it's possible that they were all a little bit high when they were actually putting the album track listings together in the first place. I think they, that may have been a factor in the writing and recording of that song. But yes, that that played over and over again would certainly encourage me to leave um, any sort of vicinity in which it was being played, uh, as would my own choice. Um, which which is is the end by the doors, uh, and that gets chosen at two levels. One of which because it's probably the worst track ever recorded by the absolute worst band that ever existed, but also uh, it's it's I think a warning uh, to people uh, who have fallen foul of drugs as 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 to where this could end up. Which is that if you carry on indulging your habit, you may well end up making records nearly as bad as the doors did. It goes like this. He walked on down the hallway And he came to a door And he looked inside Father yeah, there's days more of that. Um, and and as, as one Doors fan said to the other when the drugs wore off, God, this music's terrible. That, that was the end uh, by the Doors. Uh, would that clear you both out of train stations in, in undue haste? Probably, if it went on for a long time, which it sounds like it does. I don't think I've had the pleasure of hearing that song before. Well, I think we've just done kind of walking the streets yeah. of the flaneurs. Yeah. And I think this is a very good way of getting rid of uh, all those sort of overheads of uh, yeah. railway lines and all the costs <laughs> associated yeah. with running them. But to return to the original point just finally joy is is this basically just a, a lack of imagination by urban planners that they think they can just uh, scatter people who clearly do need help uh, mm. of some sort by by blasting obnoxious music at them um i would almost say i mean it's almost like i sort of say you know prostitutes should live in the center of town the place where you can observe this going on is the place where it's safest so you know classically almost every train station has got drug users outside it but it's also got cctv cameras police and patrols so why do you want to disperse them into the back streets where you don't know what's going on and what violence will come out of it well that does bring us to the end of today's show joy ladico and samira shackle thank you for joining us at midori house it was produced by carlotta ribello researched by fernando augusto pacheco and julia webster our studio manager was kenya scarlet music next at 1900 it's monocle on design with josh fennett i'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london time i'm andrew Muller. thank you for listening 